Well, good morning, everybody. I'm glad to see everybody here today. I'm really excited to begin our new series on the book of Philippians today. Title of today's message is Living as If God is in Control. And we're going to be looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians and discovering what living in a joyful community looks like during times of testing. In these next four weeks, I'm looking forward to sharing in each one of these chapters about how to do all of these things. This letter shows us a community learning how to live together with one another and in God's presence during difficult times. And this is a great place to start, recognizing that God's people will always face times of trials and testing. Trials and testing started in the early church, which faced times of trial and testing during the Roman Empire. But it also continues today in places like China and Iran, or even places most of us probably couldn't even find on a map, like Sri Lanka with the bombings that happened there during Easter Sunday. Wherever Christians are persecuted, God's people will always be confronted with difficulties. Now, you may think that all these times and all these places are either centuries in the past or they're continents away in places I can't even pronounce. What does this have to do with me? Well, it's because of times of trial and testing do not only happen to on a large social scale in the world, they also happen to the individual and in a personal scale, to people like you and me. We should take note of this. After all, near the end of his ministry, the Apostle Paul said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul learned this lesson during this time in Philippi, and the years later, when the Philippians came to his aid while he was in prison. That's what the book of Philippians will help us to understand. Now for the background, the book of Acts in chapter 16 records the roots of the church in Philippi. As you follow along in the sermon series, you can read that part of Acts and see how God used Paul to start a brand new work in this city that had never before heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what? It didn't start out all sunshine and rainbows. The first few decades of this new Philippian church, they experienced both success and difficulties. Have you ever thought about that possibility? We can experience difficulty even during times of success. Some may be tempted to think that the presence of difficulty means that they're somehow living outside of the will of God, but that's not necessarily true. Sometimes Christians can be right where God puts them, doing exactly what God has asked them to do, and still face persecution, opposition, misunderstanding, and suspicion. This is true on the larger social scale in the world, and it's true on the interpersonal level. Again, I'd encourage you within this next week to read Acts chapter 16, as it's going to set the stage for you to understand much of what we're talking about. And we should keep that story from Acts in mind as we look at the letter from the Philippians because it reminds us that we will go through trials. And that phrase is important. We will go through trials. Trials are made to be gone through. We will not remain in them. Trials are made to be gone through because our God is bigger than any trouble man can dream up. Perhaps you're facing some sort of personal trial today. It could be at work 
or in a relationship or have something to do with your finances. It may be an illness. It may be even a per, you may be even a person who has suffered violence for the sake of the gospel. Part of the good news, part of the gospel message is that even as we experience trials, we can have the confidence that we will pass through the trouble. God will not abandon us and leave us stuck in our difficulties. In fact, one type of Christian maturity is our ability to rejoice even when things are not going our way. We can rejoice merely in the fact that we are in the center of God's will. Another thing to consider. Even if the trouble you're in right now is something because of your foolish actions or your sinful choice, it's still true. Trials were made to go through, not to remain in them. Even if my trial is a result of my own stupidity and sinfulness, I can rest assured that I'm in the center of God's love. God is a good father. He does not abandon his people when they are in trouble. If you remember the, the story of the, of the prodigal son, the prodigal son's father ran out to meet him when that son tried to come home in repentance and faith and, and reconcile with his father. That father ran to him, and that is a picture of the God who loves you so much that he gave his one and only son for you. And that is all introduction toward this series. Now, when we get to Paul's letter to the church of Philippi, 10 years have transpired since the account of, its, of the church's founding in Acts chapter 16. Some things have definitely changed. The church in Philippi is prospering and healthy. They're not only a thriving community in their home city, they are a community that looks after the welfare of others. People far away who may be in some type of need. And Paul is one of those other people. Because this much has not changed, Paul finds himself imprisoned again. Just as he was imprisoned at the beginning of the Philippian church, now he is imprisoned again. The Philippian church has sent a gift of money and a member of their church to help him. Because it, isn't, it wasn't prison back then, wasn't like it is now. It isn't three hots, a cot, cable TV, and air conditioning. It was somebody didn't take care of you while you were there, then you rotted. You would literally starve to death if people weren't sending you things. So the Philippian church is helping support Paul while he's in prison, and Paul is able to continue his ministry and writing letters, writing scripture, doing all the work he did while he was in prison because people like the Philippians were willing to take care of him. And there, while he was in his chains, Paul writes a letter to acknowledge and thank them for their gift, to send back the brother that they had sent to minister to his needs and to teach them about the connection between Christian joy and suffering. Paul is writing this letter from inside prison. He's encouraging those outside of prison. That means no matter what circumstance you are in life, God can use you right where you are. And that's one of the greatest encouragements we see in this letter to the church of Philippi is that no matter what is going on in your life, God can use it to his glory and other people's help. This letter is a model of how to live during tough times. Over the next four weeks, we will see 
that we can learn how to live as if God is in control. That's what we're going to be focused on today. Next week, we'll learn how to live as servants. The week after, we can learn how to live a life of loss. And finally, we can learn how to live a life of generous friendship. Let's look today at the first chapter of Philippians and learn to live as if God is in control. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's an amenable statement if I ever heard one. It is right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify of how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now let's look at verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father God, I ask, Lord, as we begin this series, that you would indeed place within our hearts a God focus in every part of our lives. Instead of asking, why me, God? We ask, God, why, are you, why am I here? And what are you trying to teach me? And what is your will for this situation? That is spiritual maturity, God. So I ask, Father, that you just let your words sink deeply, that you bless this time together, and that you use it to enable us to give a reason for the hope that we have. I ask this in your name. Amen. So early in chapter 1, Paul prays for his friends back in Philippi. Isn't that amazing and wonderful? That someone far away who is in difficult circumstances like prison can still pray for others? You know, some of the most godly people I've ever met are people that are laid up because of some physical illness. I once knew a woman who was, who was dying of cancer and all she would do is sit there and ask for people to pray for. She didn't ask for people to pray for her. She wanted to spend her time praying for people. That's the kind of, of heart that Paul had for his people. So don't be fooled. Whatever difficulties or trials that you face, it cannot keep you from thinking of others or praying for them. The keys to success, in, to success in trials. Prayers for others will elevate your gaze off of your own troubles and see things through God's eyes. 
And Paul has learned this and continues his effective ministry even though his body is being held captive. He prays for the people and he instructs the church from Philippi or in Philippi from Rome. And what does he pray? What's well, right there in verses 9 through 11? He prays that the church in Philippi will be able to discern what is best for them, that they would be pure and they would be blameless that they would be filled with the good fruit that is keeping with a proper relationship with Jesus Christ. And I read the Bible sometimes. I remember when I was, I was going through Bible school, and I, I read the Bible, and sometimes I ask God questions because something really doesn't make sense for, to me. And in my mind, I'm asking God, God, why did you lock up Paul for a third of his ministry? I mean, if you would have let him go, he would have evangelized the entire world. I'm convinced he would have gotten to the, the shores of Spain and swam across the ocean to, to try to evangelize the American Indians if you, you would have let him. <coughs> and what Paul told, and what um, God showed me was that if that would indeed probably would have happened, but at the same time, if that did happen, we wouldn't have a majority of this book, the New Testament, today. That God had prepared Paul uniquely to become the world's most foremost expert in the Old Testament and the person that could take that Old Testament and make it make sense in a New Testament context. So that's why Paul, or God had to take Paul out of the missions field so that he could spend time writing these books. He could spend time writing these letters. He could spend time personally discipling people from prison so that we would have the canon of Scripture that we had today. God showed me that he has a plan and that nothing he, you have gone through nor will go through will ever deviate or be wasted in his plan if you just stay obedient. And that brings us to our next point, and that is God's priorities. In chapter 1, after praying for the well-being of the people in Philippi, Paul switches to teaching in verses 12 through 18. And he wants us to learn to, how to live as if God was in control. We do this by taking God's view of things and by taking on God's priorities. In verse 15, it says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but some out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. And the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they could stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Paul tells the Philippians that even though there were people outside of the prison who were trying to make life worse for Paul while he was in prison, Paul is actually pleased by the way things are going. And that just doesn't seem right. I mean, today there are whole ministries or organizations who think it's their calling to tear down other organizations and ministries. Even a brief internet search of any famous Christian preacher will probably show at least three different organizations that exist to show that they're the devil. 
It wasn't really any different in Paul's day. <coughs> in Bible times, there are also people who are preaching the gospel from false motives. You would think Paul would be upset. You would think at the very least he would call them out personally or be critical. But for the most part, Paul is not ever critical of them. Paul says that his situation is turning out for the advancement of the gospel. We might pay, say that Paul is gospel-centric. He's worried primarily about the good news of Jesus Christ getting out to the world. So, that he, so he rejoices that the good news is being preached. Whether it's from good motives or poor motives, the gospel is more important than his reputation, his status, or his personal comfort. It doesn't have to be attached to Paul's name. He just wants the gospel to be preached. He understands that his imprisonment is for the sake of the gospel. And he doesn't ask, why is this happening to me, God? Woe is me. Instead, he understands that God is in control. I heard this statement by our, for, by our former president, George W. Bush, when he was first in office. He said, if people don't care who gets the credit, Great things can be accomplished. And that was Paul's heart when it came to the gospel. When we have this heart, it's easy to say or agree with the idea that God is in control. But the result of saying that God is in control is saying that you're not in control. It's releasing our right to be in control of our lives. It's a joyful, joyful submission to the will of God. God is even in control behind the nasty motives of other people. And that's how Paul viewed his circumstances. Paul simply rejoices that God's priorities are being accomplished in the world. But how about us? Can we find joy in the middle of difficulties or trials if we had the assurance that God's priorities were being accomplished? You see, that's the call to a deeper maturity in Christ. It's a call to the kind of maturity that acknowledges the fact that our comfort and our safety are not the highest priority in the kingdom of God or on earth. And I know that flies in the face of the modern prosperity gospel. But that's biblical, historical Christianity and the way that they thought. The truth is God's kingdom is the highest priority. And Paul demonstrates that his priorities align with God's priorities. And when our priorities align with God's priorities, the result will always be that supernatural Holy Spirit peace and joy no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in. Whether we are in prison or free, we can experience peace and joy. Whether relationships or work or finances are going well or going poorly, we can find peace and joy when we align our priorities with God's priorities. And the third thing we can learn about God being in control is that we trust God for the outcome. In verses 9, 19 through 26, Paul says something very unusual and a little mysterious. He says that what has happened will turn out for his deliverance. In other words, 
Paul's faith that God is in control is expressed in outcomes and not necessarily in the events he was going through at that time. You see, because the events did not look promising for Paul if he's thinking only about his life here on earth. He's facing an executioner's axe. But Paul looks beyond the events toward the outcomes, and he concludes that the outcomes will be glorious for God's kingdom and God's plan. And whether in his day or ours, here are the verifiable facts that sorrow, sickness, and suffering are at large in this world. But God shows his glory by bringing outcomes that are greater than any sorrow, any sickness, or any suffering. For example, the early church father, Tertullian, said that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Like Paul, Tertullian was able to look beyond his immediate events. He was filled with the confidence that God would use even difficult events like the deaths of Christians to do something wonderful. And that's part of the glory of God. That in the middle of people's weaknesses and wickedness, God is in the world working his wisdom for our good and for the good of generations to come. So I ask you this morning, do you believe in this? Do you believe what the scriptures are plainly teaching us? Because the answer will tell you your depth of maturity in the faith. In verse 21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. <coughs> Paul was not even concerned about his own personal outcome. He said, I can die and be with Jesus, or I can live, which will mean so much more fruitful ministry for me later in life. You see, Paul does not see his life as something that he has to preserve at all costs. All he had to do is deny Christ, and he could have walked out of the prison and continued preaching. But instead, he saw his life as something that is spent in the service of God's kingdom. And the part of the teaching of this chapter, it asks us how we should look at our lives. It asks us why we should be afraid of suffering or death. Because death only means we're going to be with Jesus. If you have trusted in him as your personal savior, nothing can snatch you from his hands. Why should we be afraid of it then? Death only means that we're going to be with Jesus. And the sooner the better. Or if we live, our lives are an opportunity to co-labor with God to bring this blessing to others. And the last thing I want to talk about this morning might be the hardest for us to swallow about God being in control. And that is this thought of receiving suffering. Now in verses 27 through 30, the Bible teaches us we can learn how to live as if God is in control by receiving suffering as something that is sometimes granted to God by the to the granted by God to the community of faith. And please hear me, I'm not suggesting that anybody should go looking for suffering. We shouldn't be like there's there's a cult in the Philippines that every Easter they literally crucify themselves and, and think that they're going to somehow get God's favor 
that this next year. We're not saying that you should go and seek suffering like that. No one should bring harm to themselves by, by acting foolishly or irresponsibly. Instead, we order our lives in a way that God teaches us to. But if suffering comes as a result of our way of life, and if our way of life is pleasing to God, we should learn how to submit to the will of God even in suffering. Paul says in verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. In these last verses, Paul teaches us the value of community. That means the value of a church family. We go through whatever happens to us as a family, as a collective, as a community. And it's an expression not only of our individual confidence, but in our confidence as one people in this church. Nearly any pastor can tell you that churches grow spirit stronger spiritually and bond during times of trouble. We saw this when the, the tornado hit our church in Kenosha, just about leveled it to the ground, being held up by a single Bible was holding it up. And we have, we have a picture of that. I'll have to share that picture someday. But the building got lifted up by the tornado. The center load-bearing wall came down on top of that Bible and kept it from sliding out on this carpet. And the engineer said, yep, that Bible is literally the only thing holding up your church right now. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty cool. But you know what? Before that, there was arguments and everything going on that a church, the missions board was against the pastor, and there's all kinds of stuff going on, but all that stuff disappeared when the trouble came, and unity was like this. And our church actually grew by about 75 people. God will use those times of trouble if you just trust him to walk you through it. Paul says that the Philippians' unified, bold response to difficulties is a sign of the kingdom of God being made manifest in them. But maybe we should ask ourselves, why wait until tough times to draw together? Why wait until tragedy strikes to show our love and care for those around us? Why wait until things are bad in order to show the love of God? I would say instead, let's be a church that lives in the community and demonstrates the kind of community that Paul is telling us to be, even in times of peace and prosperity. And this is a great lesson of Philippians chapter 1. Individually and as a community, we can demonstrate that God is in control by living as if God was in control. Amen? Let's stand. Father God, I know that many of the people here have been faithful throughout generations and decades of serving you. 
But all of us need this reminder from time to time. And Father, I ask, Lord, that you would help us to be able to act in such a way that our very actions become the message of the gospel. That our lives individually and corporately as a church family become the good news to this community. That they would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Father God, I ask, Lord, that in each one of our lives individually, as well as corporately, that we would demonstrate to this watching world that we confidently believe what we say we believe and that you are in control. Father God, I thank you.